Hello, everyone. Much like last year, I am joined by Chris Corda, our head of oil, and James Waddell, our head of EU and LNG research, to talk about trading strategies for 2023. In 2022, of course, the biggest factor determining markets was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that was a massive upheaval for not just gas markets, but for crude and for products markets as well. This year, it's no, no longer just Russia. We also have to deal with China. So if you thought 2022 was crazy and volatile, I can only assure you there's going to be even more volatility in 2023. Given the popularity of this podcast, where we talked about key trading strategies, we thought we will resurrect it again this year, talk through our key views and key themes for how to trade oil and gas markets across this year. And we really look forward to receiving your feedback. Chris and James, welcome. Um, I can only say that, you know, we've already, it's just been 10 days into the new year and the amount of volatility that we've seen on uh, across all markets really has been pretty immense. I think the biggest um, factor right now determining prices across the board has really been the extremely warm start to the winter. That really does change a lot of our assumptions um, and, and does allay a lot of fears as well about gas markets going forward, doesn't it, James? That's right, Amrita. So it's been a big reset since uh, the end of Q4. We had a very mild Q4 in aggregate, although we had a bit of a cold patch in early December. That left a lot of gas sitting in storage going into this year. In fact, we had the second highest uh, storage carryout going into the start of January. And what that has done is basically means that you have a lot less uh, gas demand in industry and, and the ResCom sector that you need to kill off through high prices. And so we can see the rationale for going down to around about 70 uh, US megawatt hour because you just need a lot less demand destruction in order to balance and to meet storage targets this year. That said, we're approaching levels where you're actually starting to get gas potentially coming back into various sectors. And that could happen fairly quickly. And that's a, a real resistance level to prices much below 70. If we were to get gas pricing low 60s into the 50s, we'd be starting to look at gas meaningfully starting to displace gas oil uh, in terms of process heat within uh, refineries, um, going down further use, starting to replace LPG. Um, some of the other switching variables that we turned on last year was, for example, uh, in the North Sea, we were prioritizing gas production over enhanced oil recovery. So there's a big increase in Norwegian and UK gas production. Now, if we are pricing, you know, on the curve, we're looking at about $80 per barrel, you know, within the house, we're looking at about 110. Somewhere within that means you're looking at a gas price equivalent of 44 to about 56 euros. That would be another resistance level where you'd start to again prioritize oil production over gas production. And of course, we have the traditional uh, switching band of gas versus coal in the power sector. That starts to kick in around the low 60s. So, 70 makes some sense, but in terms of the risk reward balance, there isn't that much downside to those prices. And if we do start to get some cold weather materializing, and as Amrita mentioned, with the reopening of China, if that is a real acceleration over the first half of this year, particularly once we get past Chinese uh, New Year celebrations, then we start to potentially get a big tightening of the market and we could shoot up you know, quite quickly on gas prices. So those are the, those are the main things. The other thing that often gets cited is the fact that uh, we're losing a lot of Russian gas coming into the balance even this year, because we've got to remember for the first half of this year, we still have some quite decent volumes coming in. 
Now, most of that has been countered by a big change year on year in storage movements. As I said, this year looks fairly comfortable in meeting those storage requirements, but because we went in such high uh, storage levels at the start of January, if we normalize over Q4 this year, then going into 2024, we again have to trigger a bit more demand destruction. And to do that, you need to price high again. So we're pretty bullish on 2024 prices, even though we can kind of see how things line up quite well for 2023. Okay, so there is still a bullish gas story. And I will note like sentiment in the gas market has done a proper 180 degrees, right? We've seen traders being mega, mega bullish gas, and now they are pretty bearish across the board. So I, I think this is a very interesting trade idea out there. Uh, sometimes contrarian ideas tend to be the, the best ones simply because of uh, positioning uh, has or has been driving prices even more than fundamentals of late, right? So, so we'll, pa- we'll park that for now. But I think on the topic of positioning, Chris, if I can bring you in, I think oil has been um, quite shocking in terms of you know the only commodity, I would say, uh, that hasn't benefited from China's reopening. All other asset classes are up. And we can see that in positioning data, positioning remains at very, very low levels. I mean, you could argue they're close to COVID levels of positioning. Um, I don't understand necessarily why the market's positioning uh, for COVID-like demand scenarios, almost even with China reopening. Uh, partly it was driven by last year, the second half of 2022, uh, the oversupply that materialized, lots of different factors, China not being around, the French strikes, Russia pushing barrels into the market, that has dented confidence completely. Um, But, you know, I am hearing from everywhere on the macro front that crude is going to $50. And as James pointed out, our house view is double that, more than double that. So explain to us how we are forming that view. Yeah, well, I think it's... uh... At, at this price set currently, you know, even at $80, um, I firmly believe that you're changing the dynamics of the S&D, right? Um, much, if, if you look at last year, um, you know, especially in the second and third quarter, um, not only was oil pricing or crude pricing above $100, but the cracks, if you added that on top, you know, would have pretty un- uh, unprecedented levels, levels we've never seen before. So we were already approaching, or if not in, demand destruction territory then. So we adjusted the S&D in the middle of, of 2022. Um, and you saw that with some of the demand numbers kind of coming much weaker than anticipated in kind of the third quarter. Um, what had happened in the fourth quarter was, you know, as you mentioned, a bunch of one-off issues. You had the French refinery strikes. Um, you had China missing from the market. These are big kind of components. Um, whereas on the supply side, you know, we, we continually, we, we continue to see uh, U.S. production growth. Uh, we had little pockets of growth from the Nord Sea, um, a, a little bit of growth from um, uh, Latin America, uh, you know, Brazil's surprise to the upside. So, you know, there was just a bit of mismatch in the S&D, especially when you go into kind of Q4 uh, coming out of autumn turnarounds, um, where you have this big push on the kind of refinery side. Um, and, and China is, is, is a pretty big component of that, right? So, if you look at 2023 and how we're shaping up, um, you mentioned positioning. Positioning is actually much cleaner than it was, um, you know, just a few months ago. And, and that gives us a little bit more comfort in this view, just that, you know, I, I don't think there's the, the, uh, the impetus to really sell and go short um, with China effectively, you know, uh, coming back to the market in a couple months. Um, and, and then on top of that, you know, a big uh, kind of component that 
you know, sometimes gets overlooked is we released almost 250 million barrels, maybe a little bit more of the SPR um, in 2022. Um, that ceases now. Um, so you're going to get a relatively big kind of shortfall of supply just as Chinese demand comes in. So in effect, we had this imbalance in supply and demand in Q4 when you typically do drop. Um, that, you know, in, in our balances right now for kind of Q1 and Q2 changes. We anticipate counter-seasonally drawing in, in kind of global balances. And, and that for me is the impetus to start saying, okay, the, the bullish fundamentals we talked about happening in kind of Q4 will start to appear in kind of Q1 and Q2. So I think we still need to wait a bit. We need to see, you know, differentials rebound. You need to have these short-term indicators that tell you to, um, or at least gets the physical market a little bit more excited. Um, so I, I think that's going to be start to become quite apparent. Um, and then the, the other key kind of factor here is, you know, if we're in this price of around $75 uh, for WTI, you know, you change your supply side, you know, projections a little bit. Um, so, you know, going back to, you know, the current price set between 75 and 80, not only do you stimulate demand growth at these kind of areas, um, you potentially should be starting to adjust your supply numbers as well. So, you know, could we go down to 50? Sure. You know, anything's possible in these kind of markets on a short-term basis, but from a fundamental level, we are adjusting, you know, demand higher at these points. We're adjusting supply lower. So I, in, that, in that realm with much cleaner positioning, um, you know, I, I think it doesn't hurt to, to look at long, long positions, either, either on structure further down the curve, you know, your deck red decks, or, you know, just taking a pure vanilla position on flat price um, for, say, deck 23. Uh, the, those look extremely appealing to me. But James, the tricky bit is these, uh, you know, like like Chris is saying right now, the the traders who are talking about fifty dollar oil were also the same traders uh, earlier, you know, calling for whatever three hundred and fifty euro gas. Now I don't know what the latest gas numbers they're calling for. It is again, it kind of swings around. We had the same thing in oil. We kind of went from oh, there's going to be two hundred dollar oil to some now saying fifty. Um, do you think? with like you've already outlined in terms of the Russian flows, what we're expecting this year, again, being lower. Um, and again, with the pullback in gas prices, the industrial sector, especially if it continues to pull back, like you've highlighted, potentially get some demand back as well. Um, but do you really think that China could swing balances to the point where if you've seen gas traders go short, given the weather, you could see a pretty big short covering rally because then China's kind of reopening suddenly pulls cargoes away because Europe's again had the luxury of just having those Chinese, well, the, the cargoes that China has resold available to, to itself. We absolutely, we had um, really an unprecedented drop in Chinese LNG imports over the last year. Um, if you look at the long run average, generally this market is increasing its LNG imports about 6 million tons every year. And last year it was down, you know, close to 17 million tons. So you're kind of undoing three years of growth in the space of, of one year. So that was a huge change uh, in a very short period of time. Now with the reopening story, we've got the potential here for um, gas demand growth. And the other thing we've got to remember is that China has contracted a lot more uh, LNG than it took last year. And it's contracted a lot more on top of that for 2023. So it took about 5 million tons under contract last year and resold that back onto the global market, which is how Europe in part managed to get through the big shortfall in Russian supply. 
So you've got that difference to make up first off. And then you've also got an extra eight to nine million tons of new contracts that are starting up this year. So if you take that combined, China can import a lot more LNG without ever having to dip into the spot market and pay, you know, even 20 to $30 per uh, MMBTU. It can be paying a long-term contract about 10 to 15, which is very affordable for that market. Now, we're getting more Russian gas coming to that market, we're getting more production. Um, so we don't think uh, the risks are that much that we get you know, a huge uh, increase above what we're forecasting, but there's definitely that potential. And then what does that mean for JKM TTF, for instance? Well, we're looking at China continuing to drive a lot of you know, what defines that JKM TTF uh, differential. It is so... Uh, based on how you need to clear in the Asian market, and China is such a big component uh, within that. Now, in our balances, we still see most of Asian demand being met by supply within the Pacific Basin and from the Middle East, with very little call on Atlantic Basin supply at the margin in order to balance. That means that JKM TTF spreads should be um, pretty close. The other thing that we really need to mention, and what we've been calling for a lot last year, and we've started to see this year, is just that massive collapse in JKM TTF spreads because the prices for delivery of LNG on the water are now so much closer to the prices of pipeline delivery in Europe because we've solved all the infrastructure bottlenecks across Europe. Um, we added about 26 million tons per annum of regas capacity across Europe in the space of uh, a year, basically going into uh, the middle of this quarter, uh, putting those regasification plants into the places that have lost most of that Russian supply, namely three terminals starting up in Germany. We're going to have some new capacity uh, in, uh, in Italy towards the middle of this year, also some in Finland. We already added some capacity in the middle of last year in, in, in Gates. So all of those markets that were on the west of Europe that were having to channel LNG through into the east of Europe, those will have to disconnect a lot less. The energy price in the water can be much closer to kind of close the arbitrage with the pipeline market. So JKM TTS spreads had to be a lot narrower this year because uh, of the lack of these bottlenecks. So that was a big call. We see JKM TTF broadly at fair value uh, at the moment, but obviously if China is going to be growing faster, then we would uh, start to have, take a more bullish view on those spreads. And that would start to trigger... Um, U.S. flows to Asia via Panama, potentially some Panama congestion at that point. And if we get to Panama congestion, then you're sending those cargoes long distance via the Cape of Good Hope. And those are causing quite big spreads to make that happen. And I think we're seeing a very similar trend in oil because Dubai has been the benchmark that is outperforming right now vis-a-vis -vis Brent and WTI. Uh, we've got bills in Cushing in the near term. We've got an overhang to clear in the North Sea. So it, it makes sense. Uh, but Chris, how are we seeing the relative, like the intercrude spreads? Because Brent Dubai was the big trade, much like JKMTTF, James said. Brent Dubai was a big trade last year, but that was also the trade that went very, very wrong towards the end of the year. Um, we've obviously got the Russian losses in Europe, but we've also got the China reopening. Yeah, that's uh, it's uh, the I, I think the crude differentials are going to be a bit a bit more tricky, um, and and I think a lot a lot of it stems from the rerouting of Russian barrels over to to Asia, right? So we're we're still not one hundred percent sure how this trade is going to work cycle after cycle. This is really the first cycle that we've had uh, rerouted additional crude. Um, you know, over from um, from Russia over to to Asia, 
um, you know, can this be sustainable over the course of the next three or four cycles? Um, are we going to see a buildup of, say, Russian floating um, around Asia? So I, I think that's going to make it extremely murky. Um, if, if you look at, you know, anything with Brent Dubai or, or TI Dubai, it just gives me a little less confidence to trade that until we really see how, how this is working out. Because you could have, you know, potentially um, a massive spike in Dubai, say, if you, you know, if, if a lot of the benchmark moves over or those, those grades associated with benchmark move over to China, um, so you have a spike up in Dubai, um, but then at the same time, if you have a lot of kind of Russian floating around, that, that could help kind of facilitate or at least ease the pressure quite quickly. And that never really was the case for the Dubai benchmark, at least. Um, so, so this is going to be a new paradigm to kind of try to figure out. Um, I, I think TI Brent um, itself, the way it's trading right now, doesn't necessarily offer much opportunities to, to take a view one way or the other. Um, I think generally... Brent will, or at least the European refiners, have to source more and more of uh, waterborne crude from uh, the Atlantic Basin. So that that flow from the from the U.S. Uh, looks particularly um, it's it's going to flow in incremental amounts as we move through the year. Um, my my actually biggest concern, or I think where you probably see the best best uh, bang for your buck, is probably on TI structure. Right? Um, you know, if if you look at how the world is positioned and where the crude is needed. Um, you are kind of poised to, to drain either Gulf Coast or a little further up inland. Um, so, you know, something on, on TI relative to either bread structure, Dubai structure, um, could look a little interesting, but again, you have to wait to see how this really pans out. Yeah, especially when you've got these Cushing bills in the coming months so nobody's really going to position straight away. And let's not forget, we have WTI being included in the Brent benchmark from June. That's creating so much confusion because traders have different views. Spec change is always tricky. In the end, spec changes tend tend to be non-events, but this is a big one. And I think people are just waiting to see what happens before they deploy capital. But that may well be end of the summer before they figured out how that works. So, yeah, to your point, you might end up just being better off positioning on flat price or uh, just, you know, some deck red decks on WTI uh, because all else held equal TI brand should narrow once TI is included in the brand benchmark. Uh, but yeah, this is, I think this year is going to be much trickier on intercrude spreads rather than on flat price. Uh, that, that's for sure. Uh, but, but staying with you, Chris, I think there is, however, probably a cleaner trade to be had in the oil products market, right? I think China, again, becomes very critical. Now, I appreciate we have new refining capacity coming online in the Middle East, but they are quite diesel biased. And again, Middle Eastern refineries, just because they say they're coming online, don't necessarily always come online. They take time. They are starting up now. And China is starting to cut back on its product export quotas. So, and it, and that's fair because not only is their domestic demand rising, they are reverting back to their old policy of not polluting their own skies just to export products. So with the reopening, and we've seen this every time there is a reopening, pent up demand is enormous and we see a massive, massive spike in demand, gasoline, jet. Um, there will be some huge inter-product fight to get the yield. Um, so maybe it's better to position in margins and products than crude, maybe especially during turnaround season. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I don't know if it's a, a cleaner trade. Um, if, if you were to pick either, say, specifically just gas oil or gasoline or jet, um, to your point, I think it's going to be a fight for yield a little bit more than it was last year. 
I think diesel got uh, much of the love. Uh, and I think now, you know, you have specific issues popping up, whether it be octane at the Atlantic Basin or, um, you know, the reopening of China, you know, these people weren't allowed to travel um, easily over the past three years. And as, as you mentioned, that pent-up component, um, that pent-up demand component is, it could be massive. Um, so you could have a fight for yield, uh, whether, you know, their middle distillate yield turns more towards jet. Um, so I think, I think it's just going to be a lot easier if you look at the overall product straight and you, you take a look at the S&Ds and you know there's a products embargo coming around the corner, which is going to make it much more harder to move, say, uh, Russian products around the world. So with that in mind and, and kind of keeping in mind, you know, the big kits that are coming out for the Middle East, um, those are probably really going to be fully functional only in the second half of the year. So from, from a trading perspective, <clears throat> I think it makes a lot of sense to look at margins, you know, maybe potentially in the second quarter. Um, you don't necessarily need to have a full margin where you have a lot of transaction costs if you have to trade NAFTA fuel. So you can look at it three, three, two, one crack or something like that. Um, I, I think that makes a lot more sense um, if you want to have like a, a more of a, a products kind of view in your portfolio. So effectively going long deferred cracks and or rather deferred three to one margins and let it rolling up, right? And that would also capture China's reopening and China curtailing back product export quotas. And let's not forget, I think the unsung hero of this year might end up being VGO and fuel oil. I'm not saying we go and trade those because there's going to be, yeah. there's limited liquidity, but feedstock, you know, we forget that Russia is two thirds of the world's feedstock market and without Russian feedstock, there will be some huge, huge holes uh, left in this market. So that's going to be probably uh, the most complicated one, but also may turn out to be the most important one for oil products um, going forward. Right. So uh, in the interest of time, James, if I give you a million dollars today, where are you going to put that money? Some pretty difficult calls at the moment. I think most of the, most of the calls on the TTF, for example, where we've been saying, uh, you know, it, we were fairly bearish going to this year. I think the, the price has gone there. Um, I would be tempted to put some of it on, on going long on TTF. I think there is some upside to that price. Um, the other thing is that looking at the, uh, the fuel switching um, as well within Europe, we're talking meaningfully about coal uh, being displaced within the European market. That will have knock-on effects on, on the US market. So that potentially adds a bit of a bearish pressure on uh, US prices as well. We have seen that tie up between the two markets in the past. Um, the other thing is just looking at some of the basis trades uh, around uh, Europe. Now, many of those have started to recognize that the infrastructure bottlenecks have been mostly solved, but there will be some trading uh, there where you know, we're still relying on past assumptions where lots of LNG is coming to the Western Europe and crashing those prices relative to the rest of Europe. So. Um, putting some, you know, going long on some of those um, basis trades where, you know, Western Europe should be performing a lot, you know, better relative to the TTF than it did last year. Those would be some, yeah, good places to put your million dollars. And Chris, where would you put your million? Um, I, I'm, I'm going to be extremely simple this year, right? Um, you could do a bunch of fancy things, but, you know, if, if I look at where the S&D is and where I think a level of frat price needs to be, um, you know, on the demand side, we need to trade uh, at a level where we start to limit demand growth because clearly we don't have these large sources of supply. Um, so for me, you know, I peg that number, you know, probably at our forecast 423, maybe a bit higher. 
Um, so it's it's a very kind of simple instrument, right? Look at flat price. You can do it via options, but option premium is still is still quite expensive in, in my opinion. Um, you know, if you had the capital deploy, uh, you know, definitely like a deck 23 Brent, potentially a deck 24, you know, you're looking at, you know, either $80 or, or just above $76 right now. Um, I, I think those will, will have good value um, and, and should pan out, you know, as we move through the year. Thank you, both uh, James and Chris. Um, so, you know, now with the $2 million that I've given uh, to you, uh, the two of you together, uh, I hope there's some good trade ideas out there. And um, and we'd be very happy to hear uh, your best trade ideas. Do write in at analysts at energyaspects.com. Uh, we'd be super happy to discuss them, whether you agree, disagree, or you have different ideas to us. Um, that's what uh, makes the, the market interesting. And that what's, that's what keeps us going. So thank you for listening in. And thank you both of you once again.